0: Can't do it this way because then i'm going to be like hey how are you <laughs> going guys and you both have to talk at the same point so okay start again hello everybody and welcome back to more of a comment than a question my name is paul connor and i'm joined firstly by my friend and co-host rachel hartman rachel how are you doing
1: i'm doing all right paul it's uh, the last week before school starts again so uh i'm about to start my last semester which is really exciting unless I fail my PhD, in which case, it'll probably be my last semester anyway, because I'll just quit. But yeah, so I'm looking forward to it. And uh, yeah, glad to get this over. Don't
0: worry, because nobody fails social psych (laughs) PhDs. It's almost impossible. So I'm sure you'll be fine. And we're also joined today by a very special guest uh, making a return appearance to the pod, Daniel Larkins. Daniel, welcome back yes uh, and
2: I'm living proof that you really don't have to do anything to get a social psych phd so Rachel don't worry
0: <laughs> don't worry oh my goodness enough enough with the false modesty uh so uh daniel it's been a long time uh we too long
2: I listen to everything everything you put out
0: yeah really that's that's very yeah. dedicated um no thank you very much you've always been you've always been a great supporter of the pod how how have you been How's your holidays been good
2: good yeah, it's the end of my teaching semester as well so I'm looking forward to having next six months relatively free for research and those kind of things so um yeah yeah rounding up some some final grading and exams and then uh, some more relaxed times
0: ahead so I'm looking forward to it Sounds great and uh yeah you uh you can uh, focus all your energy on reforming scientific practice soon, perhaps.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, always, always on all sorts of levels. So, um, uh, and and I guess uh, w- one of the things um, that I recently proposed was um, to think a bit more carefully about how we have the pipeline of of the research process, mm-hmm. um, and and I wrote a small proposal to have committees at universities who do some sort of methodological review of studies that people are planning. This is largely based on my experience as chair of ethical review board at uh, Eindhoven University of Technology, where I work. So I've been the chair of this board for the last two years. And um, just very often comes up that we look at a proposal where we're like, well, you know, they're not unnecessarily electrocuting anybody here, but this study really is not going to yield any worthwhile results. It doesn't happen all the time, but you know, it definitely happens sometimes where we have some criticism. I I remember one case, for example, where somebody was studying um, the effect of spread of COVID in uh, gym rooms. So these are people from built environment. And this was going to be a direct recommendation basically for government. Uh, And I thought this study is just so badly designed. But we couldn't say anything about it. And then I thought it would be nice, you know, it would be nice if we can just make some comments before everything's too late, but that's not a role. So those kind of experiences led me to think maybe it's good to have methodological review as well.
0: Yeah. And so this is the main reason we had you on is, is to discuss this proposal because you just put out an article in uh, Nature, I believe.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, you can just call it a blog post. It's like a world view thing. I mean, that happens to be in Nature, just makes more people read it. But basically, it's a blog post. You know, it's the same thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but I mean, you can still say you've been published in Nature, and uh, it's, it's my got second a second one. My second got, one, actually. There. So <laughs> nice. I mean, so yeah. 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 It's got numbers, and <laughs> it's people true. can true. cite it if they want, and I'm sure it'll be widely read. But yeah, um, so. Yeah, so we wanted to have you on to discuss this because it's uh, kind of an interesting proposal and it's created Mm -hmm. a lot of discussion. But could you just talk a bit more about um, your experiences that have led you to think this is a good idea and what Mm -hmm. exactly you are proposing and how you think it should be sort of um, trialed or implemented? Yeah.
2: So, so before I became chair of the ethical review board of the university, I was involved in the ethical review board of our department. So we have local level ethical review and we have global level uh, ethical review. That's the global level is really for big projects, like for un- uncommon kind of projects. Most actually, uh, most research proposals go to this local departmental level ethical review board. And there since a number of years, uh, maybe five or so, we had the, Uh, a sort of extension of the form where we asked people some questions about, for example, their sample size and and how they were going to collect data and how they knew that the amount of data they would collect was enough. Um, But also to ask them to be a bit specific about what their hypotheses were and what their tests were and whether those tests were formulated well enough so that they could actually be answered by the data they would collect. So, So this is actually in the code of conduct of research integrity, so we can maybe talk about whether this is an ethics issue or not. Some people consider doing wasteful research an ethical issue. Some people don't. Um, but there is an item in the Code of Conduct of Research Integrity that says you should design studies that are able to answer your question. Well, it seems low enough bar, but we do see some cases where, you know, if people switch to a new research line where they don't have so much experience or maybe younger colleagues. Yeah they're doing independent research and they miss something somewhere, we have some more experience and we'll give them some suggestions on what to improve. So that's what,
0: what we had for the last five years. Sorry, yeah. quick clarification question. When you say uh, code of conduct, what, what, what code of conduct are you referring to? <laughs> I don't
2: know if you have one, but like, are you, are the Netherlands has a, a code of conduct uh, for research integrity? Europe has a code of conduct for research integrity. You can download these texts and these are things about, you know, that you shouldn't lie, uh, mm. but that you shouldn't harm people for no reason. Um, so those kind of items are in there. So it's like a long list of proper conduct, basically, um, research
1: integrity. Yeah. I think that they have the same the equivalent here, like human research uh, <laughs> protocols or whatever. I don't remember what it's I called, but you have to this. do these trainings, right?
2: Yeah, I, I teach about this. And, and one of the items in the code of conduct is that universities have the responsibility to teach everybody at the university about the code of conduct. So I always ask, did you actually read the code of conduct? And then everybody says, no, actually not. So oh, you're already in violation of the code of conduct. Yeah.
1: I feel like I've had to like do these, uh, trainings once a year or so. And like, I always just like skip straight to the quiz and I get everything right. Cause the questions yeah. are really dumb. In US, yes, and-
0: We, we have to have a, something called a city certificate where mm-hmm. we, we have to study think things like this but i no i was just curious w- which one uh you were referring to so it sounds like they're sort of european specific but yeah anyway sorry to uh interrupt and, and national
2: yeah we have a national version and a mm. european version they they overlap considerably
0: mm. but yeah mm. they're pretty good yeah 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 okay uh sorry go, go on
2: yeah so so in this process uh, in within the department we would take a look at proposals uh and at a certain moment, we slowly but surely increased the detail that we would ask of people. You know, first we would have something like say something about your sample size. And if they said 40, we said, well done. And then after a while, we would say, but but why 40? And they said, Yeah, we did a power analysis. We said, well done. And then we you know, we would we'd ask, but but what was the input for the power analysis? And they would give it, we'd say, Well done. And then we'd say, but this effect size where does it really come from is this really the you know all those kind of things so over the years we slowly added more and more detail to this um uh, document and we trained people as well right so if they didn't answer something correctly we would be very uh cooperative we would sit down with them maybe say no this is how you should do it um but I think that uh, the experience there was from all sides that sometimes it's a bit frustrating. Of course, you know, you, I mean, we're, we're very quick with this review process. It takes, if you do everything right, you get an approval within a week. If you do something wrong, you have to revise it. It would be two weeks, right? So it's still relatively quick turnaround, but we would sit with people, but they would still be slightly frustrated that we tell them that they didn't do something right. But, you know, then we sit down with them and we say, look, this is how it's supposed to be. And th- that was always productive. And I think both sides at the end thought that their research proposal uh, improved. And we also notab- noticeably see changes over time, not surprisingly, for example, in sample sizes. They've increased uh, to such an amount that you know our lab space is really kind of getting full. We don't have a lot of resources to collect more data because people have been collecting more data, but that's a good sign. And everybody in the department agrees, like, okay, that's actually what we want, like high quality research. So, yeah. So that's, I think, the most concrete experience leading up to this, where I thought this probably would be beneficial in other places as well. Many places do something like this, by the way. We can also talk about this. But, uh, yeah.
1: What you're describing sounds to me like what ideally uh, advisors would be doing with their students. Mm. <laughs> that's I don't know, you know, if that's the case in a lot of places. I know I have friends whose advisors do like look over every single step of their methods and, and materials, and they're like, yeah, this is going to work, this isn't. And, mm. and then there's other people who don't get that kind of uh, feedback. But then, like. I guess what you're saying would apply to everyone, right? But wouldn't you expect people who have a PhD um, hmm. to hopefully know what they're doing and uh, not need that sort of, like, training? Yeah.
2: So that's a very good fundamental question, right? And, and it depends. It depends what you think uh, we should do. If you look at medicine, um, th- these, all, these people in medicine all have a PhD uh, and they also do research. But they don't do their statistics. They have a field of specialization. So they're biostatisticians. And in their research teams, which are always large enough, they will get certain people to spend a lot of time getting to the state of the art in some sub-part that you need for, for a study, like statistics, which is just one tiny part, but okay. Um, and those people do this. And And I am a supervisor now, and I try to help my students. And I actually spend a lot of time on statistics. But even then, they do studies where I am not an expert on the methods that they actually need. So so I can't help them that much with this, right? So we have other people, you know, we fix it in the department. We would ask for help and stuff like this. But um, if you don't put as much effort in, you might just say, sure, I think this is fine. Uh, and, and you get, yeah, subpar quality um studies, I think. And best practices improve over time. And I think that's one frustration that I have as somebody who tries to make people do better research. You know, I try to educate people about new, well, not new statistical approaches, but new statistical approaches for our field. But people have only so much time to learn new skills. Um, but somebody in a methodological review board, is up to date about all these skills and can help people to implement them. And yeah, that's a form of specialization in science. And that's actually one of the things I thought was a pretty good idea uh, about this proposal. You create space for specialized statisticians or methodologists who otherwise don't really have a career path. We don't give those people tenure uh, to help other people. You know, We don't have positions like this, but I think they would add a huge amount of value if they're around.
1: Do you think that that would necessarily have to be at the level of like a review board? So, you know, you're like designing the study and then submitting it for approval and then it's getting reviewed or could it be, you know, earlier on just having someone involved in the research team who is really good at methods and stats and stuff?
2: It's, it's possible in all sorts of ways. I think you can think about how you want to implement it. And it depends a lot on the institution and on the environment. So let's say you have a bunch of people super motivated to do the best possible studies they can do, um, they have people around that have this, this expertise and these people are happy to help. And then when these people say something like this is not possible, you can't do it like this, you have to change, they all listen and they implement these things and they're happy to change their plans because this is now a better study. So if that happens uh, and we have world peace, then it's a great system and I would be totally in favor of it. Now, we recently did some research in our own university, which, you know, I'm very happy at my university. I think we do a great job, but we hear from a lot of PhD students that their supervisors are actually doing the opposite. They're actually not promoting best practices. And sometimes these students want to do better research, but their supervisors actually say no. We do it like this because this is how we do it. We've we've done it like this for forty years. This is good enough. Mm-hmm. And and those people don't have the power to say anything against their supervisors, and they get frustrated. Or even worse, I mean, in our study, which um, Andrea Kish, my uh, PhD student, I'm supervising, um, we see that this is correlated with leaving academia um, intentions. And and those things upset me. You know that that's something that I don't like. We have good people who want to do good research, uh, and they get demotivated. Well, then I think something like a methodological review board could force force people, right? So then you have to force them because we don't live in this perfect world. You have to force these supervisors. Now, this is a negative situation, right? There, I think what we experience more is just people who say, Yeah, I didn't know this even existed. Thank you for telling me that this is how we should do it. So people, everybody is happy. But but sometimes people might not want to do certain things. And that's why I think a methodological review board is a good solution to yeah have some power to make certain people who don't want to do these things uh, follow best practices mm-hmm. that's the most contentious part uh, of mm-hmm. the whole thing i would love to have your solution honestly um, and i'm quite optimistic often but in this case i don't think the, the structures are set up to just make this happen but but you know you we, we can disagree about this oh. and places can disagree, you know have different cultures so who knows
0: yeah, I, I, that's that was an interesting thing. So I, I, I haven't really engaged on Twitter about about this, uh, but I was sort of watching the discussion when you first raised the idea, uh, and a lot of people raised a lot of concerns, and and it actually seemed like a pretty overwhelmingly negative response at first. Which is interesting, because now that your piece is (laughs) out in nature, I actually think that the response has been a lot more positive to the, so just sort of reading through all the replies from when you originally sort of proposed the idea to now, and that could just be because everybody's left Twitter in the meantime, uh, (laughs) that that was quite (laughs) negative about it, but...
2: Well, I listened... Uh, to be mm-hmm. fair, I listened mm-hmm. a lot. Like, so I used mm-hmm. this explicitly. I said, I, I, you know, I floated around this idea of, okay, what if we do this? Mm-hmm. And, um, I think in my original tweet, for example, one thing that I got wrong there, but that I got better in mm-hmm. this version is I said, what if, uh, ethical review boards do this? Mm-hmm. so we expand them with a, mm-hmm. and and it was overwhelming that a lot of institutions, and especially in the u s people really don't like their uh, ethical review boards. so in this proposal, they very clearly make this could be any other kind of board, people somewhere, like you know um there's a place that does this where they call it uh, research service. Mm. you know like a research service and Mm. you can you can engage the research service yeah you also have to (laughs) engage them but it sounds much better and it's you know so so that's something for example that i changed Uh, Mm. and i listened i listened to people said but what if they prevent me from doing my type of research and i explicitly wrote something in this piece so you know it's also the difference between one tweet versus Mm. 900 words explaining Mm. the idea i hope
0: yeah 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 what um what do you think are the most um uh, pertinent or interesting uh concerns that people raised um about it because i yeah mm. you you seem you seem to think some people had better points than others so the, what did you think who did you not who but like what did you think were the <laughs> the best points raised <laughs>
2: Yeah. The best points. I mean, I, I, yeah. I mean, there are all sorts of points. Like I'm, I'm mainly on Mastodon now and I don't know if you uh, saw there, they have Yeah. This we're waiting
0: for you to come back to Twitter. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Like it's, it's not going to happen, It's not going to happen. No, Mastodon
0: is not going to happen. <laughs> no. Yeah.
2: But, but, but there's this big quote tweet sort of discussion on Mastodon because it doesn't have this feature. Yeah. And, and so I could nicely compare the two. And like on Twitter, some of the comments you just get is like quote tweet, This idea sucks. Okay, so I can't do much with this because I don't know. But some of the uh, better points which come from Macedon, I guess, as some people say, look, our institution is too small to organize this. And I can imagine if you work in a small institution, you you can't hire maybe five people that you would need for this. And you also don't have volunteers for a committee like this. So, So I replied to this person. I said, look, that's a serious concern. I understand. It sounds like it's difficult to implement. I could come up with kind of convoluted ways to do this, where like five institutions pair up and start to email things among each other. But it just sounds like too much of a hassle. So I said, you know, if you want to get your methods reviewed before you collect the data, then just do registered reports. That's a route that is available for people who want it. We don't have the the solution for the PhD students who think their supervisor is forcing them to use bad methods. We don't have that. but. For the people who want feedback, they can do a registered report.
0: Most of our listeners probably know what that is. But just quickly, what, what is a registered report? So,
2: yeah. So in a registered report, you don't have this methodological review board within the institution, but you just send it out for peer review before data collection. So you submit your research proposal to a journal. The journal will find reviewers for you who are experts in these methods. And these reviewers will tell you, okay, this is good, but you need to tweak this, or you need to change this, and then go ahead with data collection. And then in these registered reports, you get uh, conditional acceptance already at this point. So if you just follow the plan, the journal commits to publishing the results, regardless of whether they're positive or negative. So, so there you get feedback in the same way. You get feedback on the methods before it's too late, and that's mm-hmm. one of the main things that I, yeah, I think we should work towards. So
1: but is that only? Stage, sorry, just to clarify, is that only uh, option? At- the like journals that are dedicated to register reports or?
2: Yeah. So, so there, the problems there is, I mean, there are 300 or so that do it, which is quite a lot. I mean, that's something, but it's still not everything, right? Um, their turnaround is not a week, you know? I mean, it takes a lot longer. So that's, that's a downside there. Um, but, and, and another thing is people just don't seem to do them that much. Mm-hmm. uh there are a couple of hundred of these registered reports i mean brian nozick and i published the first ones in an edited journal uh a special issue that we edited that came out in 2014. so those were the first registered reports in science and by now i think we have maybe what is it like five six hundred of them or something mm-hmm. so that's like you know 0. 0.000 something percent of all studies that are done so we're not you know it's nice that it's there for people who want it but it's not a large-scale solution
0: for all the research we do now yeah. And I would imagine you, you you're thinking of quite a different scale of review, right? So, like an AWA, an R1 stage one register report, they're accepting a paper for publication in a journal. So the review is going to be a lot more detailed uh, than yeah. what you're envisaging from a um, methodological. Exactly. Reviewer,
2: right? Yeah, I think that's very important also to point out. So, so if you take a look at what happens in other places, so the clinical trials already have these, like medical institutions very often have checks on research methods. So that's like part of the response this time around. It was sort of 50-50. Half of the people said, yeah, "Uh, I'm sorry, but this is what we have. We've been doing this for years. (laughs) And the other half was now like, This is never gonna happen in practice. This will never work in practice, you know. (laughs) But the people who already do this for many years, yeah, medical schools, animal research, you know, there they really care about designing a good study because the waste is just so obvious. If you have to kill like hundreds of animals for nothing, you know, it's just horrible. Um, so, So there they do this, but there is a list which is relatively minor, you know, the things they focus on are research design issues. So we have stuff about sample size, of course. We have a clear specification of the test you'll do and the question you'll answer so you can have some insight of is this actually logically answering your question or not. Um, they will look at things like how many tests do you want to do and do you do something about multiple comparison issues, for example. Um, but also something that I care a lot about, what if there's a null result? Will your study be informative if there is no null result? And it's something that people often forget. So these committees remind them it's a relatively short kind of checklist. Hmm. Uh, in the article uh, in the Nature piece, I link to a spirit um, checklist that is used in clinical trials. Yeah, so you can take a look at what the items are. So that's a relatively modest kind of uh, thing, actually. Uh, sorry, what checklist did you refer to? I must have missed that yeah this is the spirit that's what it's called and in the nature piece i have a link there's only one citation you, typically you don't get any citations but there's one to um a study where they actually evaluate there are dedicated protocol uh, editors. right
0: is this creation yes exactly yes okay exactly. yeah
2: no, i did see that okay yeah. so, so they have a protocol mm. and they they made the protocol and they just hoped people would follow it you know mm. in psychology we actually have the same do you know the journal article reporting standards Jars. I've
0: heard of that. (laughs) Which is Uh which is a
2: great checklist to follow. And it will will improve all our papers. All our papers. If we would just sit down and go through the checklist, we would report our studies in a much better way. We would design them in a better way. Honestly. Mm -hmm. It's very good by the APA. Mm. and they're there for all sorts of study designs so these checklists exist but i guess what i want to point out is people don't follow them very well you know Mm. Mm. so what they have there this journal is a protocol editor they're just like did you follow the checklist because Mm. these checklists are pretty good we we made them to make your study better and that's all these protocol editors do so that's the reference and that's for one specific checklist we would maybe have a jars checklist you know something like this
0: Mm. so I think I'm generally supportive of this, but I I I have a few concerns, right? So, mm-hmm. sure. firstly, and you you kind of hinted at something that I think touches on this. Um, a lot of these things that you're suggesting that uh, a methodological review board would uh, comment on. I'm not sure that there's really consensus on best practice, right? So you mm-hmm. mentioned, um, that they might comment on whether a null result would be informative. And mm-hmm. I assume what you're getting at there is that you would probably want to encourage people to nominate a smallest effect size of interest, uh, so their study can test where, uh, can perform a test and uh, falsify or,
2: Mm-hmm. It would like be one way make to
0: do it. De- like an
2: equivalence test is one one approach to have an informative yeah. null result. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Um, I I'm I'm not convinced that a study conducted without nominating a small effect size of interest and uh, performing an equivalence test. Is, is necessarily useless, right? Is, is not, mm-hmm. uh, capable of answering a question or I'm not, I'm not really sure. Like if you take two identical studies and one study did this and the other study didn't, I will learn much from one that I wouldn't learn from the other. Mm-hmm. So. Just, just right there, I think reasonable people can disagree about whether this thing is necessary. And I personally would be kind of annoyed if I had a methodological review board say, no, you're literally not allowed to do this study mm-hmm. unless you do this, this thing that Daniel Larkins really likes the idea of, but you know, not, mm-hmm. not everybody is sold on this. And I think some, yeah. So mm-hmm. like, I mean, you mentioned, you know, statistical power, but there's also like, a lot of confusing issues there. Like if you're testing for some effects that there's no existing evidence, like, are you doing things in a different way? There's no uh, like Mm -hmm. existing effect in the, so you you mentioned that when you were doing this review and you're asking the reviewers also what numbers did you plug into the power analysis and where did those numbers come from? I Mm -hmm. mean, you know, like, it, it mm-hmm. does get very fuzzy sometimes when researchers are trying to do this and say, well, well what effect yeah. are we powered for and stuff like that. So, yeah, I guess, do you think that there are clear enough guidelines? And I know one thing you're strongly against is, like, heuristics, people just mm-hmm. blindly applying heuristics. But I guess, like, do you think, is it fair to do this without heuristics, right? So, like, mm-hmm. so people don't have clear guidelines? And and if not, do are there consensus based heuristics that really exist that have yeah. wide enough agreement that this would this could be uh, implementable
2: yeah I think that's a very good point um, so all I can say is that in our department And it depends on who is in this committee right and that's i think another risk so you could definitely see these kind of issues becoming so contentious and not resolved in a sort of collaborative atmosphere where people are really going to get you know sort of uh, going to fight about a topic um, and and somebody has some weird principle or whatever and they don't resolve it and it becomes a very frustrating affair and it just costs people more time and it doesn't prevent research waste it costs it it causes research waste so that's that's a concern Now, um, why didn't that happen in in the last five years in our department? Because I think we're doing this in a very pragmatic way. Um, There's a point where you have to stop. Like, you know, I like justifying, you know, I have this uh, slogan, this hashtag, like justify everything, you know, (laughs) Um, I I even have like a a, a visitor to the lab. Once came by, I'll I'll show it like, because we can see each other uh, on the webcam. She made these kind of coasters. Uh, and it says like keep calm and justify everything so but not everything you know like not not the choice and then and then the underlying thing and then the underlying thing and we're not spending like seven years of our lives trying to justify everything you have to say somewhere this is good enough this is good enough there's all sorts of uncertainty and there's a point where you know minor changes are not gonna gonna matter and and honestly I remember having a point when we were doing this in our methodological review board where there's this person in our department and this is not a statistics maven at all. This is just somebody that we over the years educated and this person said, yeah, so I'm, so I'm of course taking an effect size from the literature and I have adjusted it already because there are some publication bias, which I think that's so, so well done, right? So that's like and then he's like but i wasn't completely sure about the level of adjustment and i'm like man what are you you know you're so far you know you're you're at the best practices here i mean come on you're worrying now about things yeah we won't know what the best way to do this is you thought about it great this is good enough so this point of where is it good enough we always reach a point where we say this is good enough and there are actually many studies where there is so much uncertainty Where people just, you know, they don't even do a power analysis. Mm. Many times we don't do those at all Mm. because there's just so much uncertainty anyway. People say, really? I have no clue. These are the first 50 people that I'm going to collect and I'm going to take a look. And why do we approve something like this? Because now their question is aligned with their method. Mm. It would be worse if they do a bullshit power analysis. And it doesn't answer their question. But now they've become honest. They say there's so much uncertainty. This is just the first thing we're going to do. And a mm. lot of our studies are now phrased in these kind of much more explorative ways. Mm. And that's fine. Because then we say, yeah, yeah, no, we wouldn't know how to do anything here other than that you're saying. So go ahead, get some data, take a look. Yeah. So, so, so in practice, this works, works out in this case, you know, and in the cases that I hear about. It can go wrong. Right? I, I do mm. see that risk. But in practice, you don't have this super detailed level. You actually just make sure that the vagueness that exists is just reflected in the
0: research question. Quick quick follow up, sorry then Rachel, then um you can get back in. But when when they do sort of adapt to a more exploratory framework is what's your vision there because you do mention something in the piece about well this review boards could limit the amount of analyses uh that are done in an exploratory fashion with only some being reported and that last part is the tricky thing right there Hmm. i mean they can do exploratory analysis
2: on on you know until the end of the times basically but but not you try to say okay but wait can you just list all the questions so that they are listed you know mm. um so that would be a thing for example um not saying that they can't uh, explore beyond this that's all fine that's all fine but what you see more often for example is where people say we have these three conditions and we're gonna test if there's an effect mm. And then we say but what is the test exactly are you going to test all these things against each other are you going to do one overall test is there a contrast here tell Mm. us how many tests that's what i mean and and that takes away some of the flexibility of course Mm. but you know they're going to do something there but it's not like if somebody says look this is a 50 by 50 correlation matrix Mm. i'm just going to take a look at what we see yeah Mm. go ahead you know i mean if that's your question it's a bit of a vague question but okay if that's your question and the data you collect can answer that question. We might say stuff about accuracy in a case like that. You know, we might say, are you sure with these 12 people? Is this 50 by 50 correlation matrix really going to tell you anything here? Yeah. Maybe not, right? So so those kind of things. That's sort of the level where you're at most of the time.
1: And are you envisioning this review happening for like any time data collection happens or because like people run pilot studies and exploratory studies where you know that is their question just like what what am I going to find or how like I'm going to throw yeah. a bunch of things and see what correlates but like would do you think it would be necessary for them to go through this uh like review process for something like that
2: I think institutions need to figure out where they want to put the bar for these kind of things but i can tell you what we do which is on the extreme end so every study also a study with master students a study that you do in your course even every study that's done on human subjects goes through ethical review we mm-hmm. even don't give umbrella uh applications Uh, one approval where people say i'm gonna over the next three years i'm gonna do studies like this we say no every study is submitted but we have these local committees that do these reviews in a week so that's a lot of work for these people i think you know they sit like an hour maybe an hour and a half a week that's what they spend on this and that's two or three people so that's quite a lot of time that they're investing in this um Depends a bit on how big the department is and all this kind of stuff, but, but basically we're asking people to spend like an hour a week, two or three people, an hour a
0: week to do these reviews.
2: So that's an, a commitment, a time commitment, right?
0: Um Paul, you're Wait, looking like- I'm confused though, Norma, because that doesn't sound like nearly enough time to to do this right we for- yeah we have forms yeah. i mean
2: we have mm. forms that they fill in where they provide this information and screenshots and these people have a lot of experience they've seen like 400 studies or something mm. people also do the same studies a lot mm. right so they are like okay this is you know this is paul again he's gonna do another mm. version of this kind of study we already proved the previous seven let's take a look check 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 yeah mm. it's it doesn't take that long actually i mean i've done these committees for years uh
0: so, so yeah so how does this square because you know, in some discussions on Twitter, you were talking about this creating jobs, uh, and like a university mm-hmm. department might need to hire five people, and they could deal with three and a half thousand a year. And it, the way you were talking, it seemed like you were envisaging this being a full-time job for these trained experts. Mm-hmm. Um, and and now you're sort of suggesting that it just takes a few people, <laughs> a few people an hour and a half a week. I, I'm just <laughs> I'm a bit com- well. confused about the. Vision, well, how I mean, experience. so it
2: depends, of course, on the scale and how many people you have. Mm-hmm. But in this example, somebody said, so, you know, what mm-hmm. are the cost and what is the time scale? And and let's say that you do four of these a day and you have five people. I think that's the calculation I did that gets you to like 3,600 of these applications a year. That would be mm-hmm. a full-time thing. Now, it really depends on the, the range and the breadth of kind of studies and how many Times people do new things um, if they need help with sample size justification how much are you going to outsource to these people and in the the job version that i envision vision there is much more where we have more team science where we really outsource more of the statistical consulting or cons- statistics help to these people right so now we have this checklist is relatively minor but i think if you have people there as a job and, and that's what they do um at these medical institutions, for example, there it is a job, there are these people who do this, um, then they have more stuff to do. And, and some things we would never do. And I think this actually makes sense. Like if you try to do a sample size justification, for example, like a power analysis, they can take a lot of time. I see my colleagues do this, you know, they have a multi-level analysis that are planning and you know, they're running these simulations. And then I see 20 people in my department, Well, maybe 20 is a lot, maybe five people in my department, 10, all learning how to run multi-level simulations to do their power analysis. That's a huge amount of time. Why don't we have a person who does this for all these people? Yes, they would sit down with them, you know, so then the process becomes more extensive. So that's sort of the version where you have a job that does this. Uh, mm-hmm. But there's a very lean version where you have a form, like the Spirit Protocol Editor's Checklist, and you mm-hmm. just have the form, and you're like, did they report this? Did they check this? Dum, dum, dum. I know the mistakes people make. Check, check, check. That's, mm-hmm. that's a lighter version. So you can go... Always, I think, um, you know, but definitely when you invest more, you'll get more out of it if if a department needs it, you know, if you have a person who really helps them to introduce best practice. Mm. Or, or think about equivalence testing, like in my department, people know how this works, but this was also a process of years where we explained this to people. Sequential analysis, for example, very often done now because there's so much uncertainty. In the effect size, what they expect. So many people do sequential analysis. Yeah, how are you going to teach everybody in your department this? We did this over years, but you could hire somebody for this, basically, right? That's um, that's the more extensive version.
0: Maybe I mean one one major concern that people raised was just a practical concern. That yeah, this sounds good, but ethical review boards don't have the uh, expertise to do this, and also not just that, but like the people that you're envisaging doing this just. Uh, Aren't necessarily there, uh, or they, they, you know, it would, it might cost too much to hire sufficiently trained analysts, who because they have quite marketable skills that are valued, you know, in industry and not just academia. Yeah, what, what makes you confident that we can find enough? smart Uh, enough people to...
2: Yeah, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. So if you want to hire people, I wouldn't know, you know, it depends also so much on, you know, the location and where you are at. Um, And and I don't know what you would need to offer to make a job attractive. That's a a good question. I don't know. I know that these positions exist, you know, there are people who do like this. I know them from Twitter, you know, these are methodologists, statisticians, they work at universities and do these jobs. So, So, but I don't know in every place what it would take to hire those people. And, I, and it is difficult because our university, for example, hired experts in uh, data protection regulation. Mm. So the EU, for a couple of years, has very strict regulations about data privacy. They're so complex that you need some help. You know, if I'm collecting data with some tool that we always used, where is this data stored? What do I need to do? You know, it's quite complex. But everybody needs data protection officers everybody needs to hire these people because the gdpr is not just for universities but for companies and for everything so we've had quite difficulty finding uh experts mm-hmm. for this to hire them so i see it's difficult we do manage you know we have them uh, but they also leave quite quickly there's quite a lot of turnover because they have some more expertise and they get a better job somewhere else so i can see that this would be a practical issue um we would have to see you know i think that's uh i, I also don't know how that will work out but it's also a, a might be a logistical challenge. I agree.
1: I feel like we're not thinking big enough. What we need to do is take ChatGPT and train it on (laughs) Daniel Lockins. We just give it like everything he's ever written. And then it's just, we have a built-in lay consultant right there for free.
0: Yeah, I've been suggesting this for years. I told you years ago, you needed to be training an AI chatbot to just respond to emails for you.
2: Yeah. But I mean, it's a very good question what we need, and and I don't know, I can't see this. And there, this is for many departments and stuff, right? So I don't know, but but being a biostatistician is a job, right? That's also a career for people, so they become this. So, so I think it's possible. And um, one thing I like is that really this brings sort of a career path for a type of scientist who really likes to help other people do the best possible research. And maybe our question is like, who would do this? Yeah, because we don't see those people in science. They don't mm-hmm. exist. They don't go into science because we don't give them this option and maybe this is naive and optimistic but i think there are some people who would like to work in a team and they don't want to be a pi but they're happy to work in a team you know they have a not too stressful job they have a you know fun challenges every day i i could imagine but we will have to see in practice how it works
0: yeah i mean I, i like I, I might do this job. I mean, it, it's doesn't, I've been on the academic job market. This is kind of why we haven't podcasted in quite a while and, uh, mm-hmm. it's not going great. So I might, uh, I, I might be yeah. sort of, uh, if crossing my fingers that you get this off the ground. So there's jobs available for people who can,
2: uh, I mean, these people
0: would also have a lot of.
2: These people would have a lot of time to learn new skills. You know, if you love this kind of stuff and somebody comes to you, you say, Oh, interesting. I'll come back to you in three weeks, you know, now maybe not three weeks, but three days from now. And I'm going to dig in and learn. So these people will be highly trained. I could see that after a couple of years, they do move on to other jobs, you know, because now they're highly trained statisticians, but okay. Yeah. Yeah. So people who are on the job market and they have a sort of, yeah, hard time finding a job somewhere else, they might do something like this and they might like it, Paul. You might, I mean, this, I really, I don't know, might be a fun job, you know, who knows? We'll see. We should make it fun.
0: Hmm. So, yeah, I,
2: and and, and so doesn't should hire doesn't, you, Paul. By the way, that's the other thing. I mean, <laughs> listeners, come on, people. What's what's the deal here? Come on, it's um, obvious. It's a no brainer. Come on, hire the guy. Yeah, okay, go on.
0: I mean, it doesn't sound like an amazingly fun job to me. Just to be check, <laughs> checking if people are doing all, power analysis and, and listeners are just like, well, it's
1: not so just checking. You're like working with people to help them make their methods better and like. Mm.
0: And I would say most biased statisticians are getting involved in projects to a much deeper level than at least yeah. uh, publicly what you're saying the review board. So a biostatistician is probably deciding on modeling technique and uh, hypothesis formalization yeah. and and things like this, which you've explicitly said, no, 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 we don't go into that that level yeah. of detail here. So it's a worse job. Is what I'm maybe.
2: Saying. Maybe. I mean, I, I saw a tweet from uh, one of the editors at Nature. Um, I mean, just to say about the positive response, right? I'll first read out the tweet, but then we'll talk about being an editor. But she says, as editors, we often see papers that present good ideas, but ultimately have methodological flaws that prevent their publication, in Nature, in this case. Um, and then she says, you know, in a, in a world view, uh, Daniel Lackens argues that methodological review boards can help to alleviate these issues. So, I mean, so she recognizes this. But also, she's an editor. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to judge. That doesn't sound like a fun job to me, but there are a lot of people who like it and they do it, you know? So it's broad enough for the people. Let's, let's cross this road when we get there. Honestly, I think this is not the biggest issue to solve. Yeah.
1: yeah so, um, so I want to go back for a second to the register reports uh, discussion. Mm-hmm. I'm just a little bit, concerned because I feel like registered reports is a great idea and it really solves a lot of problems, including like methods not being good, but also publication bias and, you know, other issues that are it, it sort of helps to address. But it seems like what you're suggesting is kind of like halfway in between and it's sort of like a band-aid solution. And maybe it would prevent us from like actually moving towards a world where everything is a registered report. Um Which, yeah, like, I don't know, those things aren't necessarily, um, like, competing ideas, but Mm. it sort of feels like a a lot of the problems that would be solved by registered reports could also be solved by what you're suggesting, but in a slightly less uh, comprehensive way. True.
2: Yeah, I mean, registered reports solve more problems, like publication bias, which is a big one. And something like this, you know, you do, you do your improved study, you don't find what you wanted and you don't share it. So in that sense, it doesn't solve these issues. I have to say, I mean, first of all, by all means, write a worldview piece in nature where you say everybody should only publish registered reports from now on. And, and then I'll sit back <laughs> and get the popcorn, you know, I'm more than happy to see you write it. But actually, I would also criticize you on this. If you would argue that everything needs to be a registered report, I don't think so. I don't do this. You know, there's just a lot of this pilot work. You're completely right. You know, I do this all the time, but I still want to have a couple of basic checks for this pilot work. Um, a pilot study actually is maybe often more challenging to get informative results from. That, and that's something we see often. If you do your 1,000 participant study, yeah, yeah, okay, it's fine, it's fine, it's good, it's good, it's very informative. But actually, for these pilot studies, we have a much more challenging situation, like, but what do you do? want to do with this? Oh, you want to determine based on this pilot study, if you're going to do a bigger study? Much more challenging situation. So, um, those should also be uh, benefiting from some re- review, but they don't have to be a registered report, you know? So, I actually would say registered reports are great. I really like them. Uh, but I think this is a good complement for things that would never be registered reports, which is also fine.
0: Okay. Question. Um, imagine a hypothetical university, and they say to you, okay, Daniel, we, we love this idea. We've hired five experts, five mini-me Daniel Larkins. To, to <laughs> I, I'm do not an expert. I mean, you think I'm an expert,
2: but then we would have real experts. But yeah, go on.
0: Yeah no like I, I I subscribe to the Taleb view that you're accidentally, accidentally <laughs> useful sometimes. Exactly um, that's that's the best I do yeah. yeah. Um no so <laughs> uh okay so hypothetical university mm-hmm. We we've got our methodological review board um and they you know they have a list of uh che- checklists or, or you know whatever like they we're going to make sure every every study meets uh what these people determine is some, you know, minimum threshold of methodological Mm -hmm. rigor. Okay. Um, what should we do if one of our faculty, uh, disobeys the methodological review board? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, so this is definitely the most contentious part. And what you should do is sit down with them and say that they have to do this because this is the policy, you know, it's like, you don't skip ethical review boards because you think they're silly. We don't allow people to skip ethical review boards, and uh, yeah, so so that's the downside. You know, you give up. It comes with giving up a little bit of freedom. Those people, there will be some people who resist, and honestly, in my experience, I haven't seen them. I mean, I have seen them anyway. I don't want to, you well, know. Well, this is some of the critics. What would be what would? <laughs> but but just to give you one example, like yeah. some of the critics, and I'm petty like this. I am petty like this. I will just admit it here, but some of the people who say oh i had some experience with something like a methodological review board they were horrible i'm like oh really okay interesting thanks for sharing and then i look at their recent papers and I'm like yeah 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 they were horrible and you should have you shouldn't have run this study i'm sorry you know so but i don't want to say there's a perfect correlation there might actually be people who are extremely capable and say this is a waste of time and it is a waste of time because they are extremely capable they don't need it and they mm. still have to go through the the procedure yeah That's it. um, You know, I mean, some people suffer a little bit, but I think, um, and I also explicitly say, by the way, we should evaluate if they add value and if they really don't, I can be wrong. And then, you know, X them gone. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. I'm so confident that there will be a net benefit, um, that I'm happy to put it to the test. And if it isn't, we should not do it basically. So Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, but some people will have to go through it even if they don't believe in it. That's But that's policy. I mean, I'm sort of surprised where people say, oh, this is, you know, yeah, it's more bureaucratic stuff. That's true. But I don't know. I mean, at my institution, we don't have a lot of rules everybody has to do unless they're super important, like the GDPR. Data mm-hmm. privacy is important. Ethics is important. Yeah, methods. I
0: don't but know. You're, you, you always, yeah, you keep saying, but at my university, but like, obviously, you you work in kind of an idiosyncratic university. Do do you not like do you, do you not admit that like your experience might not generalize uh, to most universities? Because uh, I mean, to you, Eindhoven it, isn't it the case that you have kind of an unusually high proportion of kind of people interested in methods and meta science and things like this? Is that not the case? Mm. I mean, I think w- people are highly
2: interested in high-quality stuff. Like, there, there's a culture of wanting to do really high-quality research. Um, but not really, you know, it's not like my colleagues are big fans of um, whatever methods or stuff, you know, but they try. Mm. Um, I'm not so sure, but but about not representative. So there are, like, so many places where this is just done already. Mm. So we are not the exception. Mm. And if you would, like... <sighs> clinical researchers are like what what is this even daniel i mean this is not new where we do this all the time and and that's like literally half of the responses i mean i could give you now three dozen i I was surprised how many people actually said we have this here's a link this is the forms we use you're like oh wow okay it's over there it's over there this looks good Mm. so it's not exceptional really really i think it's just common in certain fields and not common in other fields
0: yeah i mean i think to some extent it's implemented pretty widely even it, so for example UC Berkeley we had to discuss power we, we had to justify mm-hmm. our sample size in our yeah. IRB um but it was just very you know it was pretty clear that the p- person reviewing it didn't really mm-hmm. know much about statistical power or, or they weren't yeah. really because so you would just say often I think most people just say, yeah we ran a power analysis yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, and well, I mean maybe from the they think that's good.
2: I mean, we did that the first year or so, you know, I mean, you have to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um And we allowed that for a year. Um But this is another interesting point, by the way. So there are all these minor variations across places where people do a little bit more, a little bit less. You know, they do look at power. They do look at sample size. They do look at, you have to specify the hypothesis clearly, or they so there are all sorts of variations already Mm. that's also Mm. interesting right so to some level we do some things well uh, maybe we should just do it well and honestly something like a jars checklist and if we would have the requirement that you just check it i mean it would honestly improve people's research so much it's just a no-brainer but um you have to force people to do it because the jars guidelines have been out for years and years and years you know and most people don't even know about them and you see the same in clinical research where they make good checklists and and still people don't even follow all of them so you apparently have to do so much work to get people to follow best practices yeah yeah so maybe we need to standardize it more that's basically the argument i would make you know that that's beneficial and also if you've done it a couple of times you know it doesn't take so much time anymore Uh, if you do the same type of research after a while it's just copy paste you know
1: Mm. Yeah. Um, I wanted to f- follow up. So I'm, I'm not trying to throw anyone under the bus. So I'm not going to name any names, but some people don't go through the IRB for all of their studies. Mm. You know, there's just like, I'm just going to put up a little quick little study on MTurk. It's not going to harm anyone. Um, mm. And I'm not, I actually have no idea like what are the repercussions for that. Especially if someone is, I mean, I feel like, yeah, yeah, like it might depend on what level they're at, if they're a student or a tenured professor or whatever, but yeah, like it doesn't, I have no idea what would happen if DRB caught them.
2: Let's be honest. I mean, there are some people who commit scientific fraud. And, and you sort of wonder, like, what are the consequences here anyway, you know? So I'm pretty sure that this would not have the harshest consequence. I can tell you what we do. So this happens. There's some people, for whatever reason, don't completely understand the rules. Uh, they're new. They, they missed something. And and then the harshest thing that can happen is that they have a conversation with me, you know? I just come by and we try to make it a thing. We try to make it a thing. And I'm like, I'm the chair of the ethical review board. I have to have a conversation with you about this. This is not policy. And we, I tried, you know, where? suit and I try to be strict and that's it you know it's not the worst kind of thing of course um, but there is policy and people should sort of adhere to it And yeah I don't know you know that's you we can't catch everybody who, who misses something and it's not the yeah anyway mm-hmm. you know policies are are there and, and we shouldn't expect 100% adherence to policies that's also not how they work but again Focus on the people who benefit from this and who appreciate it. You know, I think really think, you know, these PhD students were like, I didn't get any supervision feedback at all. Okay, good. You have people to go to. Or people were like, yeah, I didn't read up on the literature, Daniel. I know you publish about this equivalence testing stuff. What is it? I don't know. And you're like, okay, here, somebody helps you. You know, that that's the version where it's not so bad and we don't have to force people and people are happy with it.
0: Uh, so you mentioned that it should be evaluated uh and one of one of the things you mentioned is we should be looking to see is it improving uh the quality of the research um,
1: yeah
0: what do you what do you mean by that and what what kind of metrics are you imagining we use to evaluate the quality of yeah research yeah.
2: i mean You can think of well first of all why why did i put this in so when i became a chair of the ethical review board i read quite a lot of books about ethical reviewing basically i mean there are books about it and one of the common criticisms is just that all our procedures just exist and we rarely evaluate them you know and i think this is a problem also in research ethics because then you get bloat procedures that don't add anything and we don't evaluate them. So I don't want that, you know, and at my institution, I really work very hard to have the procedures as lean as possible, as quick as possible, right? From the perspective of the researcher. So, so I think that's important. So how would we evaluate something like this? I think it would be cool to have a version where you have methodological review, you give people the feedback and you expect them to incorporate it. But there's also a control condition where you do the ethical, uh, the methodological review you don't tell these people say Can you go ahead you don't get it. you don't get the feedback but we have it and then you follow up the process of this paper and if this nature editor that just said yeah we often see that there are submissions where there are these critical flaws and we can't accept it well that's what i want to see i want to see that the people who went through methodological review have an easier time getting published than the other people or they're published in the journals they like more than the other people and if that happens i think we have a good case that this value. And that's really something like a threshold I would like to see, really, something like this.
0: Isn't it more likely that adding rigor would make it harder to be published as, <laughs> publication as it No, as it currently no, of course stands? not.
2: No, no, I don't think so. No, I really don't think mm. so. No, no, because there's just often methodological weaknesses in the study that, that prevent it. I mean, first of all, mm. I think we would see that a lot of these uh, non-reviewed studies just give um, – Uh, fake, uncertain answers, right? They're not able to answer their research question, so people wouldn't submit them to begin with. That should happen more in the first uh, instance, I think. And in the ones that were reviewed, people have done studies that yield more informative results. So you could even say, okay, are you going to submit this even for publication? Do you think Mm -hmm. this is an interesting finding just for you? Mm -hmm. But you could follow it up and see if they actually end up somewhere. No, I think that's a reasonable uh, output criteria to have as methodological reviewers, and then you add value.
0: So you mean, like, controlling for how many papers are produced for, in the two conditions, uh, was it easy, did the people in the methodological review condition have an easier path through the review process? Uh, yep. So you sort of just counting no. acceptance and rejection, uh, yeah. I mean,
2: you have to get balanced papers and make them similar and all that kind of stuff, you know, not what cool study that happened to go. But anyway, you get the idea of this sort of random assignment. You have enough of them. Um, I, I think that that should be the criteria. So these papers, when the data is collected, these authors are in general happier with the results they've gotten themselves. They're happier. They, they, they've learned more what they want to learn. You could do that subjectively and ask them. But you should also ask, are you going to submit this and then follow it up yeah. And then it's publication. I think that's what we want. Like preventing research waste, which is sort of the goal, means the data you collect goes out into the literature.
1: Yeah. I feel like you could also use like word count for the reviews that people get, like, you know, oh, longer yeah, reviews it. for bad.
2: Great weapons. point. Great point. You, you would also check like, hey, the things that these methodological reviewers told you, or, and you, and you, they didn't give it to you, right? But we have the methodological review, we have the content, we didn't give it to these people, but then do the reviewers bring up some of these points? Well, if that happens often enough, I would also say it's added value. Yeah, that's a very good point. So the reviews are another point you could look at. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I thought you were going to do something like a P-curve or a Z-curve or something to look at the co- mm. actual quality of evidence.
2: Mm. Uh, uh, yeah, maybe. Maybe. I don't know. You could do that as well. But I mean, for me, it's really about uh, research waste. You know, uh, I mean, I think those would be consequences from good methods. That's definitely, sh- definitely true. But I really want these authors, these people to benefit, to get something that they think is beneficial. So better answers to their own questions and data sets that they can actually publish. Uh, that's good for them, but also good for science, of course. So
0: yeah, well, that's a that's a decent argument for an equivalence test, right? It's probably more publishable than just a plain old traditional. I think so. Uh, yeah. I mean, no n- result. Some journals
2: require it, right? Like Nature Human Behavior for Registered Reports has these requirements that you plan for null results. So there it's clear from the outset that you're supposed to do this for a publishable result. But I would say in general, um, yeah, it, it's more publishable, hopefully, if you have an informative null result versus an uninformative null result. I agree. Mm. So, so I, that, talk- yeah, yeah. I mean that that's not too high a bar I hope yeah but but Rachel yeah go ahead
1: I want to talk a little bit about research waste that you brought up a couple of times um there was one point that uh one of the responses to your tweet was about how failure is good and like this would eliminate failure and I was like really annoyed by that because yeah, like failure is good if it's like informative failure, right? Like if you fail to reject or, yeah. Yeah, you do. You know what I'm saying? Like, if no, you're, no, you're
2: completely um, right, I, I know the tweet. I mean, you <laughs> probably see that I had no, I, I did not respond to this tweet. That's something I've learned on Macedon. I mean, it's one of the nice things of being in a slightly higher quality environment. I've just learned, I am similarly upset. I read that tweet. I'm like, you so come on, this is so such a bad, bad take on it. You're completely right. But yeah, is so- part of science, but you have to have an informative failure, of course. And if you can't answer your own research question and you consider that part of science, no, no, that's not part of science.
1: Yeah. So I I guess like how much, um, like what do you think falls under like wasteful research? Mm. What what are some,
2: you know, do you want the version before I finish my glass of whiskey that I have or after my glass of whiskey? I'll
1: go with after.
2: (laughs) Okay. I mean, the future version of thinking about research waste is really, really much, much beyond just a well-designed study that answers the question of this individual researcher. You know, I think this is just the beginning. I'm not dead yet. You know, this is just my provocative take uh, of 2023. But in 2053, I'm going to write another Nature uh, Worldview piece where I say, you know, communities of researchers need to get together, figure out what the important issues are that they need to tackle and have a good plan for how they're tackling these things. Because this kind of approach that we have where everybody designs their small little studies and we don't really build another stuff and we don't falsify things and we don't do the last thing where we actually test if it works in practice because that's too much work and we just do the easy stuff. I mean, that is also research waste, if you ask me, you know, but it's on a very different level of research waste. So I like to distinguish two, two levels of is a study valuable or worthwhile to do, you know? And by the way, I should say that this title, like, is your study useless? That's, that's like the nature editors put that part in front of my title, right? That I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it, but I'm Dutch enough to, you know, to say, yeah, you, maybe your study is useless, you know, but let's, but there are two versions. So one is, Is the study useless because the thing you wanted to do, your research question can't even be answered. That's one version of useless. There's also, should you even do that research question? You know? Uh, And in some fields, again, like medicine, they are a bit stricter. For example, listing how many people die from what? Well, shall we try to fix that one thing first? You know? I mean, they're a little bit stricter in prioritizing. And this is a field. It's called research prioritization which basically means what is the more important stuff to do first. And and that's also a topic that that's the after whiskey kind of version. I would love to talk more about this, but I feel that's too provocative, far too provocative. So I'm leaving that for, you know, a couple of years from now.
1: That makes sense. I mean, I agree with uh, a lot of what you're saying. We can edit but... <laughs> that
0: part out if you like. Or, no, if
1: no, no, no,
2: you no. Know
0: people, what you want is that the long-term <laughs> no, goal it's a topic is that I care about. But Daniel Lockins gets to
2: decide the
0: priority <laughs> of uh,
2: research. No, um, I mean, practice. but I would love to motivate people to have these conversations in their research communities. But yeah. I really feel that's quite far from what the people are doing now. So, but I feel that the methodological review part is not too far removed from what people yeah. do. It's closer. You know, it already exists in places. And the other thing then slowly, it also becomes more natural. Like if you would have methodological review, you're like, yeah, no, we have to do good quality stuff and it has to be informative. It becomes a little bit easier to start to think about the second part. And then a decade later, maybe, you know, that's the Mm -hmm. skill I've learned now being in, you know, scientific reform for a decade. That's the, that's the time scale we're talking about. I mean, we did these registered reports a decade ago that yeah, 2012 was the call of papers the first registered reports it's a decade and we have 600 so i've learned or i don't know how many maybe maybe a thousand i i didn't count but that's still nothing you know so the time scale of things i've realized is really really long so so i'm also much more patient so the other stuff we'll do 20 years from now and but now we can start here maybe preventing yeah. this.
1: i'm wondering um if the funding agencies could have a role in this like prevention of waste because like i don't know if it like should it be the institution that has this these review boards, or maybe you know whoever's actually paying for the research should care about whether it's being done well
2: it's it's a very good question i mean um and i got an email today like i got a lot of emails positive emails about this but from somebody at nih for example that i Visited a couple of years ago and we talked about research waste. We had a sort of meeting. Um, and, um, she said, yeah, this is a lovely idea. And I think as funders, we should also do more about this. I said, yeah, that makes sense. But to be honest, I've never seen a grant proposal that is so detailed that you could do something like the JARS criteria, you know, that all that stuff is already in the grant proposal. It also feels a bit early, to be honest. You know, you might not even get this grant and stuff. So, for me, it feels early. A lot of people actually have replied to me and said, yeah, we put this stuff in our grant, again, more in medical research, but they say we put all this stuff in grant proposals, probably because they get their bias statistician to write that section anyway. But so, so it seems to happen somewhere. It's completely not my experience with writing grants or even getting grants. Um, Yeah,
1: Well, I feel like it wouldn't have to be at the stage of like writing the grant, but it could be like a follow up to, you know, you get the grant, and then they want to see what are the exact methods that you're going to use. And
2: I think they would have a lot of power if they would do something like that, like a follow up. That sounds like a very good idea to me. Yeah, yeah. And they could take their responsibility, I think, you know, I mean, they're handing out the money. So that makes a lot of sense to me. I haven't seen it though. So, uh, but I think it could work, but I think as a more general rule, what's the only point where you get every study? Because a lot of people don't have grants, right? They don't do research on grants anyway. So I thought the point where you get every study, if you
0: want to, is basically at the institution side.
1: Yeah, that Um, makes sense.
0: But that also means universities have to come up with the money to pay somebody to do this, Um, which... I can imagine a lot of universities not either being able to do or not wanting to do like it's not big. Be- yeah. So you imagine like a new university, you could say, okay, you can hire uh, yeah. hire somebody to do this. Uh, it'll improve the, qu- in theory, it's going to improve the quality of research and stuff like that. Or, you know, yeah. you could h- hire a new assistant professor, right? And they're yeah. going to do teaching for you. And um, yeah. so, completely, yeah, like, I-, I guess this leads into something that I wanted to ask you, which is like, If you really believe in this idea and you want to see it widely implemented, I mean, is this going to become, um, are you going to become a kind of crusader for this and, and like mm. less hands on? I'm doing research. I'm publishing papers and more like I'm a Chris Chambers. I'm like advocating mm-hmm. for the, I'm, ad, you know, cause he, I think he has done an, an amazing work in yeah. popularizing registered reports, right? But that amazing probably work. has required him to do a lot of things that are not you know, what he got into psychology to, to yeah. study, right? And now it's you're dealing with administra- administrative issues and trying to, like, political issues in journals and stuff like that. So, yeah. like, do you, like, the idea, like, is is really interesting and really good, but, you know, do you think maybe it needs, it needs, like, a Chris Chambers, and do you think that could be part of your career going forward to, like, really, like, try to push this politically?
2: Hmm. I mean, I, I didn't become chair of the Ethical review board at my university as an accident Ooh. i mean that's a plan you know I, I wanted to do something like this um so i i don't know if i would um i mean i think i could talk uh, about the topic and see where it's possible and where it is not possible And i think what you say if there's not enough money it's not possible i completely agree people can't do it fine i mean you know i, I don't think it would be a requirement everywhere i see it as something if you can afford to do it i think it will be beneficial. I think it will pay itself back in terms of output. And again, otherwise, we shouldn't do it. Um, So I definitely uh, plan to work on this within my own institution. Uh, Not immediately, because I know that you really slowly have to build up. You know, you have to educate people. You have to give them resources. Uh, But I definitely think within my institution, I, I think I will think about this. In the Netherlands, which is a tiny country, all the ethical review boards have a shared meeting every now and then, you know, and then I'll spread the word there. So that, that's sort of the thing, uh, uh, where, where I definitely will work towards. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, Chris Chambers, that's an impossible level to achieve what he's done. To be honest, I don't think I would be able to do it. But, um, what I also think is that some ideas, if the idea is out there, it makes enough sense to certain people that over time it will sort of happen. I remember we had this, um, paper on, um, Reviewing only reviewing articles if people would share the data and code mm-hmm. when when possible, you know when when legally possible and everything. So this is a paper, maybe 2016 or something. Richard Morey uh, was the first author on this, and I remember when this came out, people responded like, "This is crazy. This is a horrible idea. This is even unethical to do this as a reviewer. You know that you only pick certain reviews because people share data. This is so horrible." And now I think if you would float the idea, people would be like. Yeah, of course I do this, you know. So having the idea out there uh, and then giving some time to it might just lead, you know, to a change where people think this is actually kind of a a good idea. And and some of my favorite responses also on Twitter where people are like, "I thought this was crazy idea, but yeah, now I thought about it and I thought, yeah, might might work." That's exactly the thing you want in an opinion piece like this. And then give them another, you know, year or two years and see where it goes.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, I think, um, it's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Has anybody contacted you about, um, Hey, I think this is a really good idea and I want to push for it in my institution. Uh, what should I do? Who should I talk to? What, what, what steps should I take? Cause you know, it like say I did get a job, probably not going to happen, but like mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not impossible. Uh, say I did get a job and I, and I was like, mm-hmm. all right, the, my, you know, I want to, I want to try to push my university to do this. What, what would I do? Like, what's the game plan? Because, you know, it's, yeah. it's not immediately clear to me. No, uh, it's, it's a good
2: point. It it's a good point. So so far, I've only had contact of people who are doing this, who are in this role. Gotcha. And I reached out to these people and I said, can I see what the, your procedures are? Right. So I know what my procedures are. But I think the first thing that I would like to do is collect the way that people are doing this now yeah. and make that transparent so people can take a look at these kind of documents because these are always internal. Um, Mm -hmm. They're rarely online or never online. So that would be the first thing. Um, But I haven't, I mean, I don't think the piece, I mean, it's out like two days or three days, so, I mean, uh, but Mm -hmm. I haven't had any emails and anybody saying, oh, I want to do this as well. That would be really quick. So Mm -hmm. I'm I'm fine with that. But I think if you first collate some of the procedures that are in place and Mm -hmm. share those, people can take a look and maybe they'll be like, oh, no, we can do something like this. That's okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so that would be the first step, but nobody reached out, but it's good, a good idea. To to do this, you know, to um, uh, offer a starter kit for uh, methods review, mm. uh, but but I think it, the first step should really be giving clear insight in what the procedures
0: are at different places now. Mm. Um, do you think it's almost seems likely to me that an initial step might be really largely voluntary like so yeah. faculty, faculty interested faculty set up something that's relatively voluntary relatively toothless as well so maybe you know they they can start yeah. to just some of the research proposals get looked at they get suggest, people get suggestions that they don't they can choose to follow or not follow and this this is a very sort of uh yeah. g- gentle introduction to how this is done and that could lead to interesting data interesting experiences about 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 how this how this could work
2: that's also in the end of the of the piece i say you know you want to probably introduce it slowly so indeed give Mm -hmm. people this feedback but optional i I would prefer myself like I, i mentioned this one project which was about covid and gyms opening i mean i think there are a couple of projects where we should very quickly actually raise the bar um, because these projects are not always done by people with methodological expertise, but there are questions that they're asked to to study and, and they know about the content topic. They're just not perfect methodologists. And I think there we should be able, maybe even just as as an ethical review board, say, hey, this is such a short line from study to implementation, or this is such a sensitive population that you're studying. If you're gonna go and do this, we really want you to make sure that you have the highest bar uh, methodologically as well. So, so I feel there we could actually maybe push it a little bit harder because there are so important studies that sometimes happen, but these are also super rare. You know, I mean, these are quite rare at universities. What, what was
0: the issue with that study? And no, did it, I don't think did I it get say published? more about it. Did it get? I, can you tell us if it got published? There. I, it's
2: a recommendation for the government,
0: right? Oh, for our national oh. government. So, okay. yeah.
2: Yeah. So, um, but, but. But I, I just want to give it as an example, you know, and, um, and this is a good colleague, and we've reached out to this person afterwards. And we've, you know, we we're in good contact with these kind of things. But it's just a thing where I really realized, like, man, sometimes we do stuff that so immediately, you know, leads mm-hmm. to certain things. And the methodological aspect is just weak, you know, mm-hmm. it just happens. So, so those cases cases are so clear cut that I would like to push a little bit harder for for those. And I think it's reasonable that we discuss this, like, hey, can we at least flag certain studies where we say this is necessary
1: yeah yeah, yeah I think in that example you um, we were talking about like someone giving recommendation to the government uh, but in general like and you talked about this a little bit earlier about whether wasteful research is actually like an ethical issue mm-hmm. um, so I can see like in some situations if you're going to be you know, make your recommendation but for a specific practice, you want to make sure that it's rigorous and, and good research. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like that's st- even there, if people wasted a lot of resources initially until they got it right. Yeah. It yeah. Like, is that actually an ethical issue or is that just, you know, a waste of money?
2: Yeah. So where this happens already is in animal research, as I mentioned earlier, right? Because there, we all agree apparently that animal lives are, you know, if you waste animal lives, it's that's a waste. But for some reason, we, we're okay with wasting money because we sort of say, you know, it's just money. Um, I find that an interesting point and i mean that's really like you know i studied philosophy for a while and uh, these are the things that you love to d- debate as a you know first second year philosophy student and they're definitely different viewpoints uh but let's just say i think personally my my value system is such that i think that wasted money is wasted money you know and well i mean
1: artists- it's not even like it's wasted in one sense but in another sense you're like paying participants and yep. they're getting money, right? Like like they yeah, can exactly. go buy a beer now that's with the the money. That, so it's not.
2: Yeah. Well, um, that's true. Um, there are kind of tiny, tiny interesting things we would could consider, which I think are, you know, semantics. But nevertheless, you could say, are these people really doing this for the three euros that you're paying them? Or are they actually also doing it because they think that they're contributing to science? But let's, you know, ignore that. Um, we're also talking about your time. Uh, And and, I mean, in your cases, I don't know where your salaries come from, but in my case, I know my salary comes from Dutch taxpayers, Uh, you know, the people that uh, I go to the supermarket and I buy groceries and the people who work in that supermarket pay taxes and they give them to me. And I feel a responsibility to spend that money in the most efficient way. And if I really know that I'm just messing around, then I I, I would feel bad about this myself. (laughs) There's, of course, you know, you can say, well, messing around is actually my, that's, that's the way I get my great discoveries and breakthrough things. Okay. You know, maybe and I'm open to this. I'm open to having some money where we just say, this is high, high risk, 99% likely that nothing comes out of it, but we have decided that we want this in science. Then I'm also fine with it, you know, but that's a different discussion. Now we don't have a discussion about this and we just know people are messing around and we can see it. So,
1: yeah. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's an issue. Okay, so let's talk about one more thing that we flagged. Mm -hmm. um, Just maybe a nitpicky point is that you you mentioned in your article something about non-representative sampling. So you suggested Mm -hmm. that one thing the methodological review board could do is uh, make sure that people are using representative samples. Uh, Otherwise, they can't answer their causal question or something like that um mm-hmm. this this i find interesting like on a on a few levels so like in my own experience i i've found um pretty surprisingly similar results from highly non-representative samples and more non-representative mm-hmm. samples right so i was doing this this research on implicit evaluations of multiply categorizable targets which was just published in jpsp i'm sure you've read it uh cover to cover uh, I, I page your, twenty-two.
2: I saw your excitement about it. I think yeah. it's a really well well-done study. I took a look at it. Well, well-done study. Well
0: done. I appreciate that. Um, and uh, the first few studies were all Berkeley students, where it's like mostly female. It's actually mostly these young Asian female Berkeley students. Mm-hmm. And the one thing everybody said when I presented those results is like, mm-hmm. "Well, this is clearly just non-representative sampling, right?" So you know, I went and I got my prolific. "Quote unquote representative sample," although it's of course it's not representative on a number of dimensions, but we call it representative because it's stratified. It's a stratified. Yeah, it's a stratified exactly. And the results were identical. There was literally no significant difference between those results, and and that was really surprising. The other day, Jay Van Babel was tweeting about this new PNAS study Mm -hmm. where they found in survey research. Yeah. Uh for a number of different questions, um, a number of different studies, actually very little uh difference between non-representative and more representative samples. So given that, like it seems like we can learn things, uh often useful things, often generalizable things from non-representative mm-hmm. samples, and nobody's really using actually representative samples. Yeah. yeah. Um yeah. is this is this really something that should shut down somebody's research? Like A review board should say, no, you can't do this study unless you...
2: No. So so in the piece, I say that there are often two ways to resolve uh, an issue where there's no match between the, st- the question that people are asking and the methods they're using. And sometimes you change the methods, but actually sometimes you change the question. And this is actually a much more subtle thing, uh, mm-hmm. I think, in practice, because what, what we would say is, no, I mean, sorry, but this is your population. So can you please match that to your statistical question? Because if you want to do something else, then you have to do something else, you know? Mm -hmm. So this is actually a small thing, I think. And we, we don't go the other way, which is force them to change the method. Like, oh no, go and do representative sampling. No. Um, so, so in practice, this is actually much minor, but it creates an awareness in people that they are not doing a representative sample. And, you know, it might be fine. Um, the, the bigger issue of when would we require this is an interesting one. I don't think we're definitely not at a point where we could say this. And I, I saw this um, paper as well. Uh, you should link to the authors. I know uh, the second okay. author only, but th- then I feel I'm missing the first author, which I didn't know. But uh, um, So so link to it. I think it's in, but th- those are, that's a very nice paper. Very interesting because it's going to tell us in the future, hopefully for these kind of questions, it's actually fine. It's actually fine to have non-representative sample, um, and then until it's my, not right, like, and you never know. <laughs> of course, you never know. But from my perspective on research waste, you know, if mm. we don't have to do super expensive representative mm. samples, great, good, lucky us, mm. you know. So mm. um, yeah, but it's, it often works the other way, where you just say, "No, can you please specify that mm. your sample is actually this?" And then it's fine.
0: Mm. And that's kind of another thing people raise too is that like. People can just get around a lot of this stuff by just changing their language and say, oh, no, but it's yes. exploratory. Oh, no, but like, oh, yes. no, actually, actually, that's the effect size we're powering for. Yes.
2: Yeah. Well, the power thing, but the exploratory, that's a very common thing and, mm-hmm. and and we've seen this. So you see people move more from hypothesis testing situations and they were trying to get away with it and we say, no, but that's not what you're doing. And then we actually get a lot of very exploratory research questions, which people found surprising because they think that this is great for, you know, only hypothesis testing. But no, we mainly get exploratory questions. And actually I think people do that to get away with a lot of stuff because yeah in exploratory research we say yeah okay exploratory you have pretty decent you know amount of data so it's fine go ahead so actually uh, labeling things as exploratory is a good way to get past the whole uh, process Mm. um maybe we need to follow up on these papers to see if they are not sneakily then writing papers that are completely different in the future but for (laughs) now this is actually a good way to get by the methodological review just say i'm just exploring people (laughs) this is
0: <laughs> yeah yeah I mean and somebody made a good point that it's it's like it, you know it's pretty easy to then you know present um hypothesis tests and present things as confirmatory and so like one one thing that would be good is the methodological review proposal is published or it's it's at least available um yeah when research yeah, somebody gets- mentioned this yeah I, I like it I mean yeah those are all things
2: we can think about and work on i mean you always have if you change incentives you always have changes in behavior And this is one that I would definitely predict happens. There will be other changes that we didn't foresee, you know. So you always have to figure out what you need to do. And if it becomes too much of a hassle, you can drop it. But sometimes you can just fix those issues because they're actually relatively minor or there are good
0: ways to fix them. Well, if anybody out there wants to hire a methodological (laughs) reviewer, I would be happy to do this. Actually, like, uh, I was just tweeting the other day about how important simulation has been in, in so many of my papers. So like, you know, I mm-hmm. actually can do a bit of that uh, fancy complex power analysis stuff. But anyway, let's, let's end soon i know it's late over there you have to go but um seriously when are you coming back to twitter because come on <laughs> <laughs> i
1: mean he is on twitter Mastodon. you were responding to people on Both twitter right?
0: try so you cannot sit here and tell us it's a good user experience because we know with yeah I mean, I think,
2: I think it's great if you have a lot of people who listen to what you say anyway, and then you have nice conversations that are a bit deeper. Mm. So at my stage, this is exactly what I want. I don't want the drama. I don't want to be retweeted 5,000 times, you know, it's too stressful. I'm getting too old for this. I just want a couple of the people that I sort of already know and we chat about the things that we all like, which is what Mesodon does pretty okay. Um, oh boy. no, no, I think both of these things will exist for a while. So, um, and, and you'll see that, you know, I came back to Twitter because I wanted this thing to go a bit viral and I think people saw it. And so both platforms have their function. I think it's fine yeah but but thanks a lot for i mean one of the things uh these opinion pieces do is they force you to leave out so much stuff they're so short with 900 words so it's very nice that we were able to have a bit of a more lengthy uh, discussion about it because this topic deserves it it's a complex topic uh so i hope people get a little bit of a better idea of everything now that we talked about it for a while so thanks yeah, yeah no thanks
1: worries. Uh, thanks for coming on i yeah. i definitely like agree with your proposal and I would love it if someone did my methods for me. So, (laughs) um, if we could have implemented this, you know, four years ago, it would have been great, but.
0: ChatGPT is going to be doing your methods pretty (laughs) soon.
1: It was helping me today with my, uh, So yeah, it's definitely getting there.
0: We also used it to translate one of the replies. One of your quote tweets was like, hermeneutics is more important, uh, than this. (laughs) And so we just asked ChatGPT, what, what, can you explain this in, in, simple, simple language? Um, it means, uh, ChatGPT says that it means ability to, uh, well, understand language. And I, so I was like, Oh yeah, that's true. That's, that's probably, <laughs> that's, probably, that's probably foundational, uh, before we have methodological review boards. But yeah, no, I, I wish you all the best. And I, um, not sure if you want us to mention this, but you floated the idea that you are thinking maybe of starting a podcast.
2: Oh, if you want want to scoop, we actually recorded yesterday. Yeah, oh my yeah. goodness! I don't know, we, when, when, when do we? you know it's a thing, Paul? When do you know? I mean, uh, mm. it might not become anything. It mm. might not. It might be a couple of chats, and uh, we decide to can it.
0: But maybe so. Yeah. Smriti and I recorded a couple before we put one out in the world mm-hmm. uh just sort of finding yeah. finding our feet and till we got something that we thought okay this seems yeah. like this yeah. seems like an actual podcast um yeah I, but yeah I, I think you'd be the, great at it but who are you doing it with, with you keep saying we but
2: can't, can't say anything can't say anything everything oh. is secret but um yes. one of the things i mean I, during the COVID times we had a lot of chats with, with uh, colleagues and lab members, but also people abroad and everywhere who are sort of lonely. And we would have like an hour long coffee chat in the morning. It was so interesting. We talked about all sorts of topics and I miss it. So that's the main reason I want something like that back. You can talk about it like this, you know, yeah. uh, because you hear other perspectives and you reflect, you think, oh yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think about it. Well, yeah. well, good. That kind of conversation. Uh, yeah. So that's that was my new year resolution. So we'll see. We'll see. But you'll definitely be the first to know if we go uh if if it happens.
0: Well, I don't check Mastodon very often, so maybe not.
1: <laughs> yeah, put it on Twitter. <laughs> but uh yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I feel like your voice has a very like calming quality to it. I would just say like, I would love to be able to listen to ours. <laughs>
0: yeah, he's just, okay. you have this kind of unflappable air. I'd like somebody sometime on this podcast to actually make you angry and like let's get like fired up. <laughs> Yeah, maybe it will happen.
2: Maybe it'll happen. Uh, yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, we'll see. But uh no no Taleb, Nicholas Sorry. Taleb, first episode. Yeah, 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 we'll have him on. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. But thanks so much uh, for the enthusiasm. I'll try to live up to the expectations.
0: Yeah, can't wait. All right. Well, um this could be our last ever podcast because I'm gonna know pretty soon whether I get a job in academia or not. And if I don't, I mean screw it, what's the point? So it's been great. Uh, very fitting. You were one of our first guests. You, you could be our last guest, um, but yeah, uh, we'll we'll see. Maybe we'll maybe, we, maybe we'll hope. keep podcasting. Maybe not. But, um, yeah, hard. I think it's been yeah, it's been fun. Uh, I've gotten something out of it, and um, yeah, we have a, kind of a small but devoted listenership, uh, and I really we really appreciate you all. Um, yes. So yeah. All right. Well. I I'll, I'll see you guys on Twitter.